Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Well, thanks for joining us again today as we continue our series, The Mysteries of the Cross, with Dr. John Newfeld. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, as we begin our message today entitled, Jesus, Our Substitute. There are few Christian doctrines that are so passionately defended and so vehemently attacked as the doctrine of imputation. And by that I mean that what Christ has done is imputed or reckoned to me as his child, and what I have done, that is my sins, are imputed or reckoned to his cross. No doctrine has been more passionately defended and more vehemently attacked as that. Well, that's because this doctrine stands at the very heart of the greatest of all questions. How can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that God accepts me? How can I know that I'm going to go to heaven? How can I be assured of my eternity? So let's be clear. The debate involves everyone without exception. If you get this question wrong, you are eternally ruined. Furthermore, everyone tries to answer this question. Even the atheist does. For the atheist, their hope is that nothing happens at death. No judgment, no accountability, no God who will weigh and measure every aspect of his life. He'd better be right, for if he's not, this is a monstrous miscalculation. But for most people, almost everyone says, well, if there is a God, I do my best. That's all anyone can ask. But again, we need to ask a question. Are you sure that you've done your best? Are you sure that your best is all that anyone can ask? Are you willing to bet billions of years of eternity on that unverified belief system? You know, amazingly, many people do without any way of testing whether or not that's true. Christians bet their eternity on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. There is the testimony of the Bible found in 1 Corinthians 15:1-3. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. So, what is the gospel? You know, so many theologians have debated that, and so many Christians are confused about it. Paul's not. For him, the gospel came down to one short sentence. Christ died for our sins. His death on the cross is a substitute so that I don't have to answer for my sins, his cross is the answer for my sins. And we have bet our eternity on that statement. Now, I know that some of you are saying, look, that's old news. I, I already know this. But I want to ask, do you understand the meaning of the statement? What I say to you today will challenge you to see if you do, or as Paul says, whether you have believed in vain. I'm speaking about the doctrine of imputation. By the time I'm finished today, some of you are going to say, yeah, that's the gospel. And some of you will say, I've never heard of anything that shocking before. But all of us will understand why the doctrine of imputation is the most passionately defended and the most vehemently attacked truth there is. Today, I'm basing my remarks on 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It says, he made him. Oh, let me stop there for a moment so that we have an ability to understand who he and him are. He, that is, God the Father made him, that is, Christ the Son. So let's read again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Now, before we go further, I want us to understand who gets into heaven. Only the person who is or who embodies the righteousness of God. However else you understand that phrase, the righteousness of God, please understand that God's righteousness is a perfect righteousness. It means at least four things. First, God does that which is right without any exceptions ever. God is never morally compromised. You can't make special deals with God that might get him to act in ways that are wrong. You might be able to bribe a politician or a police officer, but never God. God does that which is right. As the Bible says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Second, what is right is for God to be glorified, lifted up as of most importance. And third, God established what is right for humanity by giving the law. So then God is the perfect lawgiver. He establishes what is right for us. And fourth, God also judges and condemns every act that is wrong or unjust with perfection. And furthermore, the penalties he meets out for lawlessness are also perfectly dispensed. And this then takes the last phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.21 as the important phrase, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Those who display the perfect righteousness of God are accepted by God. And that and only that is the guarantee of eternal life. You might say, I'm not capable of that, but your capability has absolutely nothing to do with your acceptance into heaven. Let's give an example. In order to get into the Olympics, you need to be a top athlete in your country. You might say, well, I'm not capable of that, but your capability is not the issue. It is your performance that's the issue. And so it is with heaven. Perfect righteousness is what is required. Now, let me quote a little line from Paul's letter to Philemon. In verse 18, Paul tells Philemon that in regard to Onesimus, his errant servant, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, do you see that word charge? In the older Bibles, that word was the word impute. It comes from a Greek word which refers to accounting. To impute or to reckon or to charge, or as other Bibles put it, to consider. It means to keep record of commercial accounts, like in a business, in which in your financial books or on your computer, you're keeping record of every transaction you're making. This involves debits and credits. In other words, you keep a record of everything you owe someone else and everything someone owes you. You know, if you're a student, you know that the university is probably keeping a record of what you owe them right now. If you work for a company, chances are you have a record of the amount of hours that your company owes you in return for your work, and they will pay you that on your next paycheck. That's the word impute. Certain sums of money are either credited or debited to you. They are reckoned to you. They are charged to your account, waiting to be paid. They are imputed to you. Now, according to the Bible, there are three things that are charged, imputed, or reckoned to your account. First, we are reckoned as sinners in Adam. Nowhere is that more clearly seen than in Romans chapter 5. And here are some of the verses from chapter 5. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, verse 15, for if many died through one man's trespass, verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, verse 18, 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then in verse 19, listen carefully. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You see that? Another word for made in verse 19 is the word ordained. God announced, made, ordained, anointed, or gave every person the office of sinner in Adam. Adam's sin, his first act of sin, is imputed or reckoned to your account. As David says in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. That's how you started life, wearing the team jersey of humanity with a penalty assessed you from God, and that penalty is death. You were born into sin and death, and ever since, you have willfully committed sin and have added sins to that ledger. Yes, you're a sinner, but your greatest problem is not that you sin. I mean, that is a huge problem, but your biggest problem is that you are in Adam with his sin reckoned or imputed to you. It is credited to your account. Now, that goes to the heart of the issue of whether human beings are first and foremost good or whether they are first and foremost sinners. You know, back in history, in the 300s, there was a theologian by the name of Pelagius who argued that human beings were born good but sinned through the bad example of Adam. Now, interestingly enough, every single branch of Christianity, Catholic, all Protestants, Evangelicals, Eastern Orthodox Christians, all Christians have condemned this view as heresy. To believe this is to deny the gospel. Now, why is that? because it contradicts the plain testimony of the Bible. Romans 5, Psalm 51, for instance, but also because this view mocks the necessity of the cross. The Bible teaches that our problem is not that we sin on occasion, but that we are in sin, that our entire existence is sin. And therefore, we stand before a righteous God and we stand condemned. And that is exactly what a part of imputation teaches us. I am reckoned or I am counted as a sinner. This, the sin of Adam, along with my own sin, has been entered into my debit ledger and it remains there to be read and addressed by God who made me. The faithful commitment of ministry friends across Canada is overwhelming. Again, this past June, you have successfully joined with us to accomplish our June fiscal year-end campaign goal, and we're filled overflowing with appreciation. Nearing the end of June, we were also presented with a $75,000 match pledge, and for every dollar given, another dollar was matched to support the ministry goals up to $75,000. Can I let you know that the same group has committed to an additional $75,000 match pledge in July? The summer's often a lean month financially, so your gift matched by this pledge will do so much to begin the new fiscal year strong. All of us working together to support the proclamation of God's Word. Join us with your gift this month toward our $75,000 match by calling 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. We've said that the doctrine of imputation teaches first that we're reckoned sinners in Adam. But now let's get back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This now brings us to the second issue of the doctrine of imputation. Our sin was reckoned to the sinless Christ. 
Romans 5 calls Christ the second Adam, the one who also represents the human race just like Adam does. Now, let's read our text, 2 Corinthians 5.21, in context. I'm reading verses 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Notice again, right at the end of that section, the word count. Yep, that's our word, to reckon or to impute. God found a way in Christ not to credit our sins to our account, but according to verse 21, rather to credit them to Christ's account. Look now at Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, that's why Christ is called our sin substitute. He became sin for us. In other words, the story of the cross from one vantage point is God's open declaration of what God thinks of sin. Jesus was spat upon and mocked and held up to public ridicule and beaten and whipped so that his back was nothing but a mangled piece of meat. Crown of thorns was jammed into his head, piercing through his skull, and then nailed hands and feet, spread eagle to a cross, then lifted up and dropped into a hole so that his shoulder sockets would pop out of joint. And he was left for hours dangling there. Every breath would cause excruciating pain. And there he hung until he died. And that, says the Father, is exactly what sin deserves. That's the perfect punishment for sins taking the sinless Christ and treating him with such barbarity accurately reflects God's righteousness. Now, just so we're clear, this should have been us. Again, in verse 21 in our text, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. That's the story of the cross, and that's what you must see. But as vivid as that picture is, When we tell of Christ taking our sin, we have as yet told only half of the story. And the problem is many of us have lived on only half of the story. From our perspective, the cross of Jesus forgives our sins and takes us right back to square one as if we had never sinned. And that's true, but it's not the whole truth. And here's why. Did you notice after you gave your life to Christ and you were told how Christ forgave all your sins that you soon found that you sinned again and you wondered, Can I go back to the cross and have one more forgiven sin there as well? And then as you got closer to God, you began to recognize how overwhelmingly sinful you were. And you saw things you never knew were sin before, and you felt overwhelmed. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, it's one thing to say that our sin is removed. It's another thing to say we become the righteousness of God. Or listen to Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, what does that teach? It teaches the third truth of imputation. Christ's sinlessness was reckoned to us. How did Christ live? Well, listen to the testimony of three people who watched him. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3 verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Or listen to Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I want you to think about all the times you're tempted to sin, how often you don't stand firm and you sin. Now, at the same time, I want you to imagine the temptation of Jesus. Oh, I know that we're told of the three temptations when he fasted in the wilderness. But as he grew, there were regular boyhood temptations to disobey his parents. As he reached puberty, the temptation to lust. When he reached manhood, the temptation to abuse his power. And never for one moment does he fail. And here now is the sobering truth. Compare your record to his. Pretty sad, wouldn't you say? And here now is the breathtaking truth. His perfect record is imputed to you or charged to your account so that on the final day, all who trust in Christ will stand before God and will be judged not on the basis of our sin-prone record, but on the basis of Christ's sinless life. And that's the great exchange. He got my sin with its full punishment, and I got his righteousness with its full reward. And that's what we mean when we talk about the atonement. All that is Christ's is now mine. And all that sin which is mine was borne by him. And what do we say to these things? Well, three things. First, God is both satisfied with this arrangement and more, he is glorified by this arrangement. God is satisfied because he can forgive and still be righteous. That is, God can be both loving and merciful and still be the righteous judge who always treats sins as it deserves. And God is glorified because this shows the supremacy of God in all things. Our salvation has absolutely nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. I'm not saved by something I have done. I am saved because of something God has done. And when I appear before him in glory, it is Christ's life and not mine that counts. All glory goes to him and none to me. And second, we who have trusted in Christ have become united with Christ. Go back to our text, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, notice these words, in him. The words in him or in Christ appear 73 times throughout the pages of the New Testament. There has been made between us and Christ a kind of union. I and Christ now share a common life. Think of it this way. You know, since I live in Vancouver, I have many times heard Canucks fans say, we won or we lost last night. They probably say that in your city regarding your team as well. And if it should ever be that the Canucks should win the Stanley Cup, this city would be full of people saying, we did it, even while most of them get winded and out of breath by simply crossing the street. But that makes the illustration. All that is Christ now belongs to me with the exception of his deity. His reward is my reward. Even when I suffer in this life, I'm reminded of his suffering. When I am tempted, I think of his temptation. My life is hid in his life. I live through him. But I need to stop here because we have not yet made plain how this great exchange takes place. And now on this, question hangs our eternity. And because this matter is so vital that we need to be clear, and God help me if I'm not clear on this point, let me share it with you, how this great exchange happens. Romans 4 verse 5 says, 
And the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And did you notice the term counted? Yeah, you guessed it. There's our term imputed, reckoned, credited, counted. God imputes your sin onto Christ and Christ's righteousness onto you. He does this through faith. Your faith is credited or imputed to your account as righteousness. Now, some people stumble here because we don't understand faith. Let me explain as best I can. The story is told of a man who was crossing the desert on foot. He ran into trouble and was dying of thirst when he spotted a pump near an abandoned shack. He went to it and began to pump up and down on the handle, but the handle moved easily up and down and no water. Just as he was getting desperate, he noticed a jug full of water near the pump with a note attached. And the note said, there's just enough water in this jug to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. This well has never gone dry, even in the worst of times. Pour the water in the top of the pump and pump the handle quickly, and you will get all the water you need. And after you have had to drink, refill the water for the next man who comes along. What would the dying man do? If he drinks the water from the jar, there won't be enough to get across the desert but he will stave off death for a short time. If he puts the water in the pump and it doesn't work, he will die immediately. What now stands before him is a test of his faith or a picture of his unbelief. He stands before the jug for some time trying to decide, believe me, that's your question. Will you take your confidence and pour it onto Christ or will you trust in yourself? That's what the cross forces us to do. Will I trust in Christ's accomplishments or mine? Your eternity rests on that question. John, thanks for your message today. Uh, You were giving that illustration about that man in the desert, and it made me think, what causes us to guzzle the water? Yeah, and guzzling the water really does mean that I trust in something that I can do for my eternity rather than Christ. And what causes us to do that? Well, you know, Ben, you know, that really is the important question that we need to address because faith seems so unnatural to us. I need to pour myself out onto Christ and be confident only in him. Boy, I, you know, I guess I might say, you know, my sin causes me to do that. Uh, maybe my, my, my lack of understanding of Christ causes me to do that. But I do know that the greatest challenge for any of us will always be, will I pour myself out onto Christ? Amen. What a great word. And join us again tomorrow when John will be speaking on satisfying the wrath of God. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again 5th Anniversary Cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward and begin the morning with devotions from InDoubt ministry leader Isaac Dagno. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? 
We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life.